Hello, and welcome to the Historia Dramatica podcast. I'm your host, Willem Connor. Thank you very much for listening. On November 25th, 1970, prolific Japanese author Yukio Mishima shocked the world when he, following a failed attempt to overthrow the democratic government of post-war Japan, brutally killed himself. Mishima was one of the greatest authors in modern Japan. What had led him to do this? Over the course of this series on the life and times of the great author and political activist, I hope to answer that question and more. Without further ado, let's get into the narrative. Yukio Mishima was born on January 14, 1925 in Tokyo, Japan. He was not born as Yukio Mishima, however. He would have to earn that name. Mishima was born Kimitake Hiroka. He was from a humble background. Up until two generations ago, the Hiroka family had been peasant farmers. They didn't even have an official surname until the 1820s. Kimitake's great-grandfather managed to acquire a decent-sized fortune, at least enough to send his youngest son, Jotaro Hiroka, to the Imperial University in Tokyo. Jotaro showed great promise. He was smart, and perhaps more importantly, charming. Thanks to these traits, Jotaro climbed through the ranks of the Japanese bureaucracy. His career reached its peak in 1908, when he became the first civilian governor of Karafuto Prefecture, which today is called Sakhalin Island, and is owned by Russia. Bureaucrats enjoyed high social standing in Japanese society, which enabled Jotaro to marry above his birth. In 1893, the year after he passed the imperial exams that enabled him to become a bureaucrat, he married a noblewoman named Natsukuo Nagai. Natsu, as she was called, boasted an impressive pedigree. Her father had been a daimyo, one of the great and powerful warlords of pre-restoration Japanese society. Through marriage, the Nagai clan, and now the Hiroka family as well, was related to the Tokugawa clan, the family that had nominally controlled all of Japan from 1600 to 1867. Things were looking up for Jotaro, what with his noble wife and high office, but the Hiroka's family fortunes started on a steep decline in the decade before Kimitake's birth. In 1914, a scandal broke out in the administration for which Jotaro took the fall. He resigned his post in disgrace. With his governor's salary gone, Jotaro had to find other ways to support his family, especially his wife and her expensive tastes. His initial venture into private business failed miserably, as did all his subsequent attempts to recoup his losses. He sold off all of the family's land holdings, and the family moved into a more modest house in Tokyo in 1919. Being an arranged marriage, Jotaro and Natsu hardly liked each other to begin with. But before, when Jotaro was on his post in far-off Karafuto, Natsu hardly had to interact with him. So long as he kept the money flowing, she was content. Now forced to share a smaller house with each other, Jotaro and Natsu's worst personality traits and mutual hatred began to bubble to the surface. Jotaro carried on a number of extramarital affairs with other women, despite the fact that he lived with his wife year-round. Jotaro and Natsu had only one child, in nearly three decades of marriage, Azusa Hirooka, Kimitake's father, born in 1884. Jotaro's failure to produce any further children was attributed to untreated gonorrhea. Natsu naturally grew to detest Jotaro, but for her part, she had her own issues. Part of the reason why the Nagai family had so readily married off Natsu to a commoner was because they were worried that they would never be able to find her a suitor on account of her mental illness. What exactly it was that Natsu suffered from is unclear, 
the most any author has said about it is that she would suffer from bouts of hysteria from a young age. Her condition was undoubtedly made worse when Jotaro imparted his venereal disease onto her, giving her debilitating chronic pain with which she would live for the rest of her life. As Mishima himself would go on to write in his autobiographical novel, Confessions of a Mask, quote, Who knew that these paroxysms of insanity that continued to her death were the memento of my grandfather's sins in his prime, end quote. The couple's only child, Azusa, naturally hoped to enter into the bureaucracy like his father. He was a young man when he witnessed his father's downfall. Azusa attributed his father's failure to his personability and frivolity, and endeavored not to repeat his mistakes. This approach only got him so far. He acquired a degree from the Imperial University in Tokyo, just as his father had, but, unlike his father, Azusa was never able to reach the same heights of power and success. One factor contributing to Azusa's lack of success was the burden of his father's debts. With Jotaro retired, Azusa became the family's breadwinner, and the task of paying off the immense debts Jotaro had accrued over the course of his business ventures naturally fell to him. Still, the family lived relatively well. By the time of Kimitake's birth, Azusa was serving as deputy director of the Bureau of Fisheries, and the family lived in a decent-sized house in a fairly good Tokyo neighborhood. They even retained the services of no less than six servants. Kimitake's mother was Shizue Hachi, the daughter of a middle school principal whom Azusa married in 1924. Kimitake Hiroka, the child who would become Yukio Mishima, was born the following year. Kimitake was frail and sickly for the first half of his life, and a series of health incidents in his early childhood speak to this. From the outset, Kimitake was abnormally small at birth. Then, at one year old, he suffered a traumatic head injury when he fell down the stairs at home. The worst of these incidents occurred when he was around four years old. One day, he suddenly vomited up something that he described as being the color of coffee. His parents sent for doctors, but it seemed unlikely that the child would survive. His pulse was imperceptible, and he grew deathly pale. Anticipating his death, his parents began to collect his personal affects for burial, when suddenly little Kimitake sprang back to life. The diagnosis was auto-intoxication, and according to Mishima, he was afflicted by similar, albeit less severe, bouts of this illness once every month or so. From the time of his traumatic head injury at one year old, Kimitake's grandmother, Natsu, took it upon herself to protect and raise him. From this time until he was 12 years old, Kimitake lived in the basement with his grandmother. Natsu was pathologically overprotective of her grandson. She forbade him to run around the house or to go outside without her permission. Some biographers have even suggested that Natsu intended to raise Kimitake as a girl. On those rare occasions when he was let out of the house, it was only to play with children that Natsu herself had approved of, all of whom were invariably female cousins of Kimitake. Kimitake was not allowed to play with toy cars, swords, or any other traditionally masculine toys, rather only with dolls, origami, and other things of that nature. This certainly isn't what Azusa wanted for his son, but there was really nothing he could do. Natsu fiercely defended her dominion over the child. It was not until age six that Natsu finally permitted Kimitake to be alone with either of his parents. When Kimitake had to be breastfed, Natsu would leer over her daughter-in-law throughout the whole process, and would snatch Kimitake away from her as soon as he was done. As he grew older, Kimitake practically became his grandmother's servant, responding to her every demand, as her hip displacement made it difficult for her to move. 
For Kimitake's part, he accepted his grandmother's rule over him without protest. This is because he quickly learned that pushing back against his grandmother's will would induce a terrible tantrum from her. One can only imagine the psychological effects this sort of upbringing had on young Kimitake, and it is not my place to speculate. It does stand to reason, however, that a child brought up in such circumstances would find respite in fantasy. In Confessions of a Mask, Mishima describes in vivid detail one of his earliest memories, one in which he recalled being smitten by the image of a European knight on horseback and fantasizing about his gruesome death. This morbid obsession with death and beauty would define Mishima's entire life, and this is the first time we can see it rise to the surface. But more on that later. In 1931, at the age of six, Kimitake began attending school at the Gaku Shuin, the Pierce School. This was a school especially designated for the children of nobility, with Kimitake qualifying due to his grandmother's lineage. Still, the material realities of the family's everyday life were much different. The Hiraokas were solidly middle class, and Kimitake was constantly reminded of this. He became the subject of ridicule from his peers for his low-born background, but also his physical appearance. Having grown up primarily in a basement, Kimitake was pale, emaciated, and stunted, both physically and socially. He had never been permitted to interact with boys his own age before now, and now he was constantly surrounded by them. The adjustment was an understandably hard one to make. Kimitake never really got along with his classmates. It did not help that Natsu pulled strings with the school administration to have Kimitake exempted from physical education, class trips, and even having to eat lunch at the cafeteria. Kimitake's exclusion from such activities hurt him deeply. One of the earliest writings of his was written in the second grade. It concerns a school excursion to the island of Enoshima, just across the bay from Tokyo. It reads in part, quote, I didn't go along in the excursion. When I woke up on the 20th, I thought that everybody must already be at Shinjuku Station right now, or already on the train. These were my first thoughts in my head. When I thought of everybody arriving at Enoshima, I wanted to go so badly I could hardly stand it. I have never been to Enoshima, so I wanted to go even more. I thought about it from morning to night. When I went to sleep that night, I had a dream that I went along with the others on the Enoshima excursion, and I had a good time, although there were rocks and I could not walk at all. Then I woke up. End quote. A couple of years later, the Hiroka family moved out of their house and into two smaller, separate houses a block or so away from each other. Azusa and Shizue lived with their two other children, Chiyuchiki and Mitsukuo, in one house, while Kimitake lived with his grandparents in the other. Kimitake was permitted to visit his parents and siblings once per day, on his way back from school, but he continued to spend every evening with Natsu. During these years, Natsu's health only continued to deteriorate, and Kimitake was increasingly called upon to wait on her hand and foot. Once when he tried to leave, Natsu hysterically threatened to kill herself. Thankfully, this state of affairs only lasted for three years. When Kimitake turned 12 years old, Natsu suddenly decided that it was time for him to rejoin his parents and siblings. What exactly prompted this decision is unknown. Perhaps Natsu realized that she had only a short time left to live, and having her little helper around would not necessarily change that. Perhaps she realized that what she was doing to Kimitake was extremely damaging. Whatever the case, the influence that Kimitake's grandmother exerted on his life cannot be overstated. She invested him with her haughty, aristocratic sensibilities. She imparted to him a love of kabuki theater that he had for the rest of his life. He was taught to be proud of his samurai ancestors, and to downplay his commoner background. 
She invested him with a strong respect for manners and etiquette. Those who knew Mishima personally would often comment that he was often very stiff and formal, sometimes even haughty. But, most importantly, Natsu shaped the young Kimitake's very psychology in a fundamental way. A quote from Mishima biographer John Nathan, quote, Her profound dissatisfaction with herself and her wildly poetic longing for a distant past, an elegant past, a past of beauty, she can be said to have inflicted Kimitake with his romantic agony. Surely he was in its grip by the time he was twelve years old, longing, like a true romantic, for purity and beauty, and possessed of a fierce and impossible desire to be other than himself. End quote. Despite the effect that his grandmother had on his life, when she died two years later in 1939, Azusa said that Kimitake had no visible reaction to the news. Having been a shut-in for most of his childhood, it stands to reason that young Kimitake would take to books. They offered him respite from his dull reality. He read anything he could get his hands on, whether it be Japanese classics or the newest literature coming out of Europe. He read it all. His taste in literature for a boy of his age in Japan was actually rather impressive and well-rounded. It helps that the school that he attended to did not ban European authors on the basis of Japanese exceptionalism, nor did they ban seemingly bourgeois Japanese authors. All was available to him, and he read it all. Naturally, this translated into writing. Kimitake wrote his first short story at the age of 12, the same year he moved out of his grandparents' house. Entitled Sorrel Flowers, A Memory of Youth, the story concerned the encounter between a young boy and an escaped convict. Still, he considered himself a poet first and foremost. He filled notebooks upon notebooks with poetry. Kumitake began to submit some of this poetry to his school's literary journal, to be published. It was in this way that he made acquaintances with one Toshitami Bojo. Bojo, the editor of the school's literary journal, was quite impressed by the quality of Kimitake's poetry and set out to meet the young author. To his surprise, the author was a scrawny, pale kid, eight years his junior. The two boys did not meet in person too often, but exchanged letters on a fairly regular basis. They conversed about life topics, but more importantly they exchanged work with each other for criticism. Kimitake and Bojo remained close friends in about four years. After that point, Kimitake felt that Bojo's literary talent was inferior to his own. While this does sound pretentious, he'd be forgiven for thinking that way. By 1941, Kimitake had risen to such incredible heights. At 15 years old, he became the youngest member of the literary club's editorial board, and he was elected to become editor of the school's literary journal, replacing Bojo. Taking Bojo's place as Kimitake's closest confidant was one Fumihiko Azuma. Azuma was another author, like Bojo. He was considerably older than Kimitake, but unlike Bojo, he was dying of tuberculosis. Thus, he and Kimitake never met face to face, but they developed a very intimate relationship through the exchange of letters. Kimitake greatly admired Azuma, not only for his literary ability, but for the stoic way in which he faced his inevitable demise. Later that year, Kimitake was invited to write a story for the magazine Bungay Bunka, Art and Culture. This story was entitled A Forest in Full Bloom, and published in three parts. To protect Kimitake from backlash from his peers, and his father, his mentor, Fumio Shimizu, suggested he take a pen name. Brainstorming together, the two eventually decided on the name Yukio Mishima. The name itself has no special meaning. It was chosen almost at random. Mishima was the name of a town at the base of Mount Fuji. 
Yukio, was derived from the Japanese word for snow, as well as from the surname of a poet Kimitake idolized at the time. For whatever reason, the name stuck, and, from henceforth, in his public life, Kimitake would be known as Yukio Mishima, not as Kimitake Hiroka. A force in full bloom greatly impressed the readership of Bungain Bunka, so much so that Mishima was invited to become an editor for the magazine, a position which he held until the magazine was dissolved in 1944. Mishima's parents reacted in starkly opposite ways to their son's literary success. His father did not approve. Azusa held very traditionalistic views on culture. Literature, he once said, benefits only the people of a degenerate nation. He saw in his son's preoccupation with writing and reading as a waste. As the eldest child of the family, Azusa's expectations of Kimitake were rather lofty. He expected him to follow his career path and to become a bureaucrat. But for the first two years of Mishima's schooling, Azusa was not at home, at least not consistently. His job had stationed him in the city of Osaka, some 500 miles or so to the west. Rather than move the entire family, Azusa rented a room in Osaka and visited his family back in Tokyo only periodically. When Azusa returned home for good after two years, he was greatly disturbed to find that his son had been entirely consumed by his passion for literature. He stayed locked up in his room for all hours of the day and the night, tirelessly reading and writing. Azusa voiced his disapproval, but when Mishima failed to heed him, he took matters into his own hands. Very often, Azusa would storm into his son's room, take whatever manuscripts he could find, and tear them to shreds as he looked hopelessly on. Mishima never gave up writing, though, thanks in part to the influence of his mother. She encouraged him to continue writing, and she provided him with books that fueled his overactive imagination. She used her family connections to secure Mishima audiences with renowned poets and authors from across Japan. Thanks to her support, and the support from his peers, Mishima continued to write at a very steady pace throughout the rest of his tenure at the Gakushuin, writing eight novellas, three essays, and a volume of poetry. The matter of Mishima's sexuality is a matter of controversy. In Confessions of a Mask, Mishima described his sexual awakening in graphic detail. He recalls flipping through a book of his father's and coming across a reproduction of Guido Remy's painting, Saint Sebastian. He described the image thusly, quote, A remarkably handsome youth was bound naked to the trunk of a tree. His crossed hands were raised high, and the thongs binding his wrists were tied to the tree. No other bonds were visible, and the only covering for the youth's nakedness was a coarse white cloth knotted loosely about his loins. Were it not for the arrows with their shafts deeply sunk into his left armpit and right side, he would seem like a Roman athlete resting from fatigue. The arrows have eaten into the tense, fragrant, youthful flesh and are about to consume his body from within with flames of supreme agony and ecstasy." End quote. Needless to say, this image of St. Sebastian, seen at such a young age, left quite an impression on Mishima that would stay with him for the rest of his life. After this discovery, Mishima described being smitten by another boy at the academy, a boy whom he calls Omi. Young Mishima was highly impressed by Omi's physique and athletic ability, but kept his sexual desires well hidden. Much of the plot of Confessions of a Mask hinges on Mishima's shame at his sexuality. Later, Mishima began to court a distant cousin known only as Sonoko. He was all consumed with the desire to kiss Sonoko, as if it were to prove to himself and others that he was... normal. When he finally did kiss Sonoko, he claimed to have felt absolutely nothing. Having to come to terms with who he was, he broke things off with her. 
Perhaps Mishima could never have a functional, sexual, or romantic relationship. This is because for Mishima, eroticism was intimately tied with death. Through the Bunke Bunka magazine of which he was an editor, Mishima was able to meet others who shared his fascination with death and who would irrevocably shape his philosophical views. These people were the Nippon Romanha, or the Japanese Romanticists. The Japanese Romanticists, according to author John Nathan, quote, fabricated a fantastically complex and impenetrable aesthetic ultranationalism in which everything traditional was exalted into an absolute supreme ideal. The divinity of the emperor was an article of faith, as was the peerless beauty of traditional literature. These provided a cause that, for them, was worthy of dying for, end quote. In short, these men were, like Mishima, completely obsessed with the prospect of death, but not just any death, to die for Japan. Thanks to romantic poets and authors such as Shizuo Ito, Mishima's conceptions of death became inexorably entangled with ideas of war and nationalism. It's no accident that Mishima began to associate with the Romanticists around 1942, because just at that moment, the tides of the war in the Pacific were beginning to turn against Japan. In the abstract, Mishima became obsessed with the war. Quote, I found childish delight in war. There was no abatement of the daydream in which I believed myself beyond the reach of harm by any bullet. I even shuddered with a strange delight at the thought of my own death. I felt as though I owned the whole world. End quote. But at the time, the war was still an abstraction. The fighting and dying was happening on some far-off islands in the Pacific. In 1944, when the first Allied bombers began to reach the Japanese home island, the reality of war began to sink in for Mishima. In private letters, Mishima described combat as being vulgar. He secretly began to dread the possibility, the inevitability, that he would be called up for active duty. 1944 was Mishima's final year at school. Over the course of that year, his class was conscripted for civilian duties, twice. They were sent first to a naval engineering school, and later to a naval dockyard. Mishima graduated from the Gakushuin in September 1944, at the top of his class. As such, he was awarded a silver pocket watch by the Emperor himself. The experience of encountering the Emperor face-to-face -face was life-changing for Mishima. It was an experience that would stick with him for the rest of his life. Following his graduation, Mishima naturally wished to attend university to study literature, but his father had different plans in mind. Instead, Mishima was to enroll at the Imperial University as a law student. Mishima obeyed his father's wishes, but he still refused to give up writing. He spent his days studying law and his nights writing literature. It was not long before Mishima was once again drafted into service. While his previous two assignments had been brief, this one was to be for an indefinite period of time. This time, Mishima was sent to the Nakajima Aircraft Factory at Koizumi. This particular factory was dedicated to the manufacture of kamikaze aircraft. Given his frail physique, Mishima was exempted from physical labor and given a desk job. He took advantage of his position to continue writing. In a letter written to an acquaintance at this time, Mishima admitted that he, quote, wanted to put reality aside and wrap himself up in his own world, the world of his tiny, lonely, aesthetic hobby, end quote. Still, the kamikaze factory fascinated Mishima to no end. A quote from Confessions of a Mask. I had never seen such a strange factory. In it, all the techniques of modern science and management, together with the exact rational thinking of so many superior brains, were dedicated to a single end. Death. 
producing the combat plane used by the suicide squadrons, this great factory resembled a secret death cult. End quote. On February 15, 1945, while visiting home on leave from the factory, Mishima was presented with the dreaded red paper, a draft notice. As John Nathan puts it, the blood red color of the paper was an appropriate touch because, in 1945, a draft notice was tantamount to an imperial command to die. Mishima was ordered to report to the village of Shikata the following morning. Before leaving, he wrote a short farewell letter, which reads as follows, quote, Father, Mother, Mr. Shimizu, and all my other teachers at the Gakushuin and the Tokyo Imperial University were so kind to me. I thank you for your blessings bestowed upon me. Also, I shall never forget the friendship of my classmates and seniors at the Gakushuin. May you have a bright future. You, my younger sister Mitsuko, and my younger brother Chiyuki, must discharge your loyalties to our parents in my place. Above all, Chiyuki, follow me into the Imperial Army as soon as possible. Serve the Emperor. Long live His Majesty the Emperor. End quote. While en route to Shikata, Mishima fell gravely ill as a cold he had contracted back home began to worsen. He spent the night convalescing at a relative's house, and by the morning he was at least able to stand. However, his skinny physique and deathly pale appearance instantly marked him as a city dweller, and thus he became the object of ridicule from the local farm boys. Finally, it was time for the draftees to be subjected to a physical examination, to ensure that they were fit for active service. They were herded into the army barracks, stark naked, Mishima sneezed and coughed uncontrollably as the doctor asked him a series of questions about his health history. Mishima replied that he had been running a fever for nearly six months now. A lie. But, when the doctor put a stethoscope to Mishima's chest, he detected a rattle, which he took to be a sign of incipient tuberculosis. Mishima was thereby deemed unfit for active service and was dismissed. This was a pivotal moment in Mishima's life, one that he would reckon with for quite a long time. He described his initial feelings in Confessions of a Mask, quote, What I had always wanted was to die among strangers, untroubled, beneath a cloudless sky. If such were the case, wasn't the army ideal for my purpose? Why had I lied to the army doctor? Why had I said I'd been running a fever for over half a year, that my shoulder was painfully stiff, that I spit blood, that I had been soaked with night sweats? Why, when sentenced to return home, did I feel the presence of a smile pushing persistently to my lips that I had difficulty in concealing it? Why had I run so fast when I made it through the barracks gate? Hadn't my hopes been blasted? What was the matter that I did not hang my head and trudge away with heavy feet? I realized vividly that my future life would never attain the heights of glory to justify having escaped death in the army, and hence... I did not understand the source of the power which had made me run away so rapidly. Did it mean I wanted to live after all? And that completely automatic reaction, which always made me dash so breathlessly for the air raid shelter, what was this but a desire to live? End quote. Still, Mishima persisted in the delusion that he, deep down, wanted nothing more than to die. In March, the Allies undertook the single most destructive bombing raid on Tokyo. Mishima described being transfixed by the images of destruction he witnessed, the flames, the explosions, and fantasizing about perhaps being annihilated in such a bombing. He fantasized about the day that American soldiers would land on the beaches of Honshu, and he and his classmates would charge out to meet them, only to be slaughtered to a man. But that day never came. On August 15, 1945, the Empire of Japan surrendered unconditionally. 
the emperor himself took to the airwaves to announce the terrible news to his subjects. One can only imagine the way in which Mishima reacted to hearing the emperor's decree. Suddenly, the prospect of dying for the nation on which he had staked so much was nil. For quite some time, Mishima was completely numb, as he slowly began to restart his literary career that the war had put on hold. But, just as he was beginning to put himself back together after the nation's surrender, Mishima was dealt two further blows that were just as psychologically devastating. The first was his breaking off his engagement with Sonoko, as I explained earlier. The second was the untimely death of his younger sister, Mitsuko. Mishima would later tearfully recall spending the day and night at his sister's bedside as she lay dying of typhoid. Quote, a few hours before her death, she became quite delirious. I will never forget the way she said, thank you, brother, when I gave her water. I wept. End quote. Mishima loved his younger sister dearly, and he felt her loss most acutely. As the Hiroka family listened to the emperor's pronouncement of surrender, Azusa is alleged to have told Mishima, quote, We now live in an age of culture. If you want to become an author, you may go ahead. End quote. Azusa went on to retract the latter half of that statement, but the first part held true. The Japanese would truly be living in an age of culture. Mishima broke off his ties with the Romanha, that literary group of ultranationalists with whom he had been associated during the war. This is partly because the group had been decimated by the war. Many members committed suicide after hearing of the surrender, including Mishima's friend, Zenmei Hasuda, who murdered his commanding officer for criticizing the emperor and promptly committed seppuku. But the main reason Mishima broke off with the Japanese romanticists is because they were now anathema in post-war Japanese society. The allied forces who now occupied the country naturally disapproved of the romantics' nationalist writings, and so they were heavily censored. Mishima sought out new people to support his literary career. He found a mentor in 46-year-old author Yasunari Kawabata, Kawabata had avoided the occupation force's censors, and moreover, he had a reputation for helping out younger authors. Mishima brought him a number of manuscripts on New Year's Day, 1946. Kawabata particularly enjoyed Mishima's short story, Tabako, a tale about the abuses he suffered and the relationships he had forged at school. Kawabata liked the story so much, in fact, that he sent it along to the magazine Ningen, where it was published. From that point forward, Yasunari Kawabata would be a mentor to Mishima for practically his entire life. At this point in time, however, Mishima was still unable to dedicate himself to his literary career full-time. His father was still adamant that Mishima follow the career path he had laid out for him, even more so now considering the dire economic straits Japan was in in the period immediately following the end of the war. So Mishima, still dutifully obeying his father, continued to take law classes at Tokyo Imperial University now simply renamed the University of Tokyo. In November 1947, Mishima took the civil service examination and passed with flying colors. Immediately, he applied for, and was accepted to, a position with the finance ministry. But even though he now held a job in the most prestigious ministry in the whole Japanese government, Mishima could not stop writing. He treated his job with the seriousness it merited, but he also stayed up until 3 o'clock every night, writing short stories. His hard work began to pay off, however. Thanks to Kawabata's assistance, Mishima was beginning to have more and more of his stories published. By 1948, Mishima was earning enough income from his literary work that he felt confident enough to resign from the ministry. He did not dare do this without his father's permission, but after having explained it to him, he found his father to be rather amenable. 
Azusa granted Mishima permission to quit his job, but he ordered him to become the best author in the land. Mishima was a bureaucrat for only seven months. Not too long after quitting, Mishima began writing what would be his most important work to date, his autobiographical novel, Confessions of a Mask. Mishima saw the writing of Confessions of a Mask as a therapeutic effort, one that he had to undertake to exercise the demons within him. What exactly prompted him to start this project in November of 1948 is unknown. Perhaps it was one final liaison with Sonoko, after she had married. More likely, biographer John Nathan points to the suicide of author Osamu Desai in June 1948 as being the catalyst. Mishima and Desai were not friends. They had met in person only once. But that one meeting seems to have made quite the impression on Mishima. Mishima met Desai while he and a group of friends drank bootlegged sake in a dingy club in Tokyo. During a lull in the conversation, Mishima got up right next to Desai and told him to his face that he disliked his writing. Desai took this insult in stride, saying that Mishima must have liked his writing, or else he would never have gone there. The snobbish Mishima considered Desai to be one of the few authors who was nearly as good as him. But moreover, Mishima saw much of himself in Desai. As Mishima wrote about Desai, quote, Naturally, I recognize Desai's rare talent, and yet know of no other writer from whom my first contact with him filled me with so violent a physiological revulsion. Probably, this was due to my immediate sense that Desai was a writer at pains to expose precisely what I wanted to conceal in myself. End quote. On June 13, 1948, Osamu Desai, along with a mistress of his, drowned himself in a canal just outside his house. His body was found six days later, on what would have been his 39th birthday. This event shook Mishima to his core. He saw too much of himself in Desai, and did not wish to share in his fate. He believed that this might be avoided if he were to expel his demons in the process of writing such an autobiographical work. Biographer John Nathan wrote of Confessions of a Mask, quote, In Confessions of a Mask, Mishima dissected himself alive. What he hoped to find was the source of his fascination with death, the root of his recklessness, nihilistic aestheticism. Reliving his life in Confessions through his first-person protagonist, Mishima drove himself remorselessly to the recognition of the fact that he was a t latent homosexual, and worse, a man incapable of feeling passions, or even alive, except in sadomasochistic fantasies that reeked of blood and death. End quote. And that is where I think I will leave things for now. Be sure to tune in again in two weeks' time to watch as Confessions of a Mask catapults Mishima to overnight fame and success, as he continues his journey to become the best author in the land. In the meantime, if you have any questions, comments, concerns, etc., you can email me at historiadramaticapod at gmail.com. Alternatively, you can always reach me via Twitter or Facebook, links to which can be found in the episode description. Until two weeks from now, this has been the Historia Dramatica Podcast. Thank you very much for listening. I'm your host, Will Connor, signing off.